What used to be a colonial powerhouse is now a bargain backdoor destination for travelers seeking the southern climate and character found in Italy or Spain, but without the crowds. I'm Rick Steves, and we're heading to Portugal today on Travel with Rick Steves. Economic problems in Europe may be causing tight times for the Portuguese, as well as residents of a few other Euro countries. But for visitors, and even for retirees, it helps to make Portugal a more affordable option. Portugal's Mediterranean-style atmosphere comes without the high-season crowds and prices of Italy or France, and with your choice of exciting beach resorts and wild landscapes. Two travel experts, one born in Lisbon and the other about to move there, join us today to point out the simple pleasures of Portugal. From vineyards producing traditional vino verde in port, to city neighborhoods spiced up by former African colonies. And we'll make time for your calls to 877-333-RIC. Let's hear your stories about connecting with locals you meet on the road. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A sip of sprightly vino verde is waiting for us to start today's program as we get a personal guide to Portugal on today's Travel with Rick Steves. One of the most underappreciated corners of Europe, as far as I'm concerned, is Portugal. Portugal is separated from Spain by, I think, the longest unchanged border in all of Europe. And when we go to Iberia, it's very important to check out this wonderful country of Portugal. I'm joined today by two wonderful Portuguese guides, Cristina Duarte, who is born and raised in Lisbon, and Robert Wright, who lives in Argentina and has been vacationing and working in Portugal, just has a a real love for, for Portugal and is in the process of moving to his favorite city, Lisbon. Roberto and Cristina, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if I was to kind of put Portugal in a nutshell economically and geographically, uh, roughly 10 million people, 95% of those people Catholic. It's got the economy about the same size as the state of Indiana. Uh, the average income is about $22,000 and sort of a humble corner of Europe, but it's catching up. Christina, tell me about the, the economic situation in Portugal. Well, I'm not going to talk about crisis. I mean, <laughs> it's too sad right now, and it's pretty much all over the country right now, and the world of crisis. So the economic crisis yeah, yes. that the United the, States is going through it, is hitting Portugal completely, as well. Completely, completely. As, uh, well, pretty much, for instance, has a comparison on the news. We we compare to United States. We just got into the 10% employment people. Okay. So did you have a real estate bubble like we did and the oh, values yes, crashed yes, down? Com- completely, completely. All over and, Europe, uh, the prices it, of houses yes. were like incredibly high five years ago, and uh, today people are realizing, oh, we were just deluding ourselves. Though there was been a, a great effort throughout the year of 2009 to uh, help families getting their, well, mortgage paid and, uh, well, their bills paid. Because uh, 2008 especially, we arrived to a, such a high, uh, so expensive kind of life, and especially the, the mortgages were taking more than a half of our uh, incoming. So Portuguese people were, by your estimate, living beyond their means yes, a couple years ago. completely, completely. And today the society is having to come together and do an uh, unprecedented, radical kind of moves, like our country is doing, yes, to yes. make sure that we have the, the foundations of a, a strong and realistic economy. Yes. Robert. I think one of the most interesting things that I've noticed while I've been there is that this is the first crisis that Portugal has had to go through since joining the European Union in 1986 because it was a steady growth rate from that point on. And now they're really feeling that, oh, maybe it's not going to continue to be uh, positive growth forever. Because last time I was in Lisbon, or not last time, but a few years ago, I remember there was scaffolding up everywhere because exactly. people were saying, we got to spend our European Union money quick right. because no. they're going to stop giving us money. It was so easy to get credit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could buy a house. We were talking about that. You could buy an apartment in 50 years, a mortgage. You could buy a car in, well, five years. I mean, even supermarket now, it could be paid in three months. So... See, everything was on debt. On everything debt, was paid. Yes. So there was a enjoy unreal, now, pay later. Yes, <laughs> there was a Welcome unreal to attitude. <laughs> <laughs> now, when when Portugal joined the EU, you said in eighty six. Yes, in eighty six. Uh, anytime a country joins the European Union, they're either a net giver or a net receiver. Mm-hmm. Portugal was a relatively poor country, so it was getting money. It was receiving aid from the European Union because it joined the same year as Spain and Greece. And, and uh, they were all net receivers. So that was so good. It was very good for them. And that really got you on sort of a roll, and then all of a sudden it dries up, and we've got this um, reality check. Now, Portugal was once 
one of the most powerful countries in Europe, but that was like 500 years ago, right? About 500 years ago, beginning with the explorations in the 1400s and taking about 100 years, finishing up in about the end of the 1500s. We know Vasco da Gama, Magellan, these guys were Portuguese. They went out there, staked all sorts of land. Spain and Portugal conspired to divide the whole world up. (laughs) You can have that. We'll take this. I mean, look look at South America. Part of it speaks Portuguese. Part of it speaks Spanish. Goes back 500 years. Suddenly, uh, well, not suddenly, but over time, the empire collapses... And, you know, I think it's sort of ironic. The places that had the empires had it kind of easy, and they didn't have to be realistic with a fundamentally strong economy, and everybody else is working and producing, and you guys are just kind of raking it in from your colonies. Then all of a sudden something changes. Your colonial empire is gone. Christina, what happens? What happened is that we were pretty much to get everything that we needed from the ex-colonies. I mean, Portugal uh, is not a rich country itself. We don't have what natural were your bases. Big, what were your big uh, colonies? Which one? Uh, Angola. 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 Uh, in Africa, I mean, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea, Santomé and Prince, but those are small islands. And uh, Guinea is the Bissau area and Cap, Green Cape, Capo Verde. So those were your empire into the 20th century? Uh, and Brazil was, but Brazil became independent in 1836. Okay. And then we, until the 20th century, we kept Goa in India and also uh, Timor. And That's also, like Indonesia. Yes, Indonesia. And also, well, <laughs> amazingly, Macau in China. That's right. So, That's Portuguese. Yeah. But now so is all see, of that gone? All of that gone. gone. So all you have now is interesting restaurants. Yes. And interesting people living in Portugal. Well, tell me about that, Robert, because you're sort of a, the world is your playground and you choose to live in Lisbon and it's probably not just for the uh, sardines. It's (laughs) not, but that's a good benefit for living in in Portugal. (laughs) But uh, actually, the thing about Portugal that makes it very special for me is the fact that you see people from all of those ex-colonies living in Portugal. Uh, You walk down the streets of Lisbon, for example, and you see uh, women in full African dress. And that's something that you don't see in the rest of Iberia. That's true. I mean, there's whole districts that are from Goa or from Timor or from Mozambique or Angola. Yes. Uh, Robert, if you're going to connect with the Brazilian culture in Lisbon, you've spent years in South America. What do you enjoy about the Brazilian culture, which is the Portuguese-speaking culture of South America, in the motherland, you know, Portugal. Right. It's it's funny how that uh, how it's affected Portugal because a lot of the Brazilians during tough economic times in the 1990s went to work in Portugal because they were part of the European Union and receiving all of that funding that we talked about earlier. And so it creates a big influx of people that have no language difficulties. It's a different dialect, but uh, basically it's Portuguese. It would be like Ecuadorians or Peruvians going to Spain for work during the same period of time. When there's a boom time. When there's a boom time in Europe. No more boom time. Now you've no got a lot time. of people from your former colonies. Does that cause stress in the Portuguese economy? Uh, it does, definitely. And actually, uh, in throughout all of Iberia, people are returning to their homeland. because really? uh, Local people want the jobs? If there's no work you for anyone. Back to Angola. They're going to go back home. Does crime go up when employment goes down? Some, but that hasn't been much of a problem. That was a problem a while ago, but now Mm -hmm. it's so we have a nice, uh, safe situation for travelers walking around the streets in the big cities and so on. Christina, when you have tourists coming in, they probably throw Portugal in with Spain. Yes. How how is Portugal distinct from Spain? In all the aspects, I mean, we are at the very at the very edge. So uh, we have to travel and to struggle for almost 800 years to, well, to keep our independency because, I mean, the normal thing it will be that uh, such a great and big country like Spain to just insert it into their territory. So since the 12th century that we, we pretty much had troubles in keeping our independency. So you guys are like uh, <laughs> a feuding countries sharing the Iberian Peninsula. Exactly. There, the historically. Only ones, exactly. But the you only do have, is it true you have the longest unchanged border in Europe? Uh, yes, uh, since 1249. 1249 is, uh, is really official. That's quite with, <laughs> now, when I think about Spain, I think about eating dinner really late at night. I think about tapas, and I think about the paseo, getting out and strolling in the streets. Uh, what are the sort of equivalents in Portugal? How would that relate? The relationship with that is that it's pretty much what region we are talking about. Because when you are in summer, for instance, and you have like 37 degrees during daytime, you don't want to get out the daytime. You pretty much postpone it to the evening. So you have the late sunset eating because you can okay, appreciate so the, fiesta, the freshness. Uh, taking a break in the heat of the midday and eating exactly. late at night that's driven by climate. And yes. Portugal has a hot climate yes. just like Spain. Right. Yes, but 
for us, that is the, one of the differences to Portugal and Spain, is that for us, that hot climate is just from city of Lisbon down, I mean, to south. That's right. In the north, it's, it's We have, cold. it's a country that is, uh, well, a rectangular, I mean, a stand-up rectangular, mm-hmm. a very small one, <laughs> but still makes a huge difference between east, west, south and north. It's like I always compare it to, uh, well, in a space of one hour and a half drive, you are like a twilight zone, completely different landscape. <laughs> and different cultures yes, as well within exactly, your country. In exactly. the south, you've got more of an African flavor. Uh, African flavor, yes, for the proximity with uh, Moorish culture and also Africa, of course. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through Portugal with Cristina Duarte and Roberto Wright. Our phone number is 877 you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Brent is on the line from St. George, Vermont. Brent, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Um, my wife and I are planning a trip to uh, Lisbon and southern Portugal in November, and uh, we're especially interested in self-guided walks where you can just sort of amble into a town and kind of discover it slowly on your own. And we were wondering if there were any particular areas of uh, southern Portugal that would be worth checking out. Self-guided walks, you're talking about in towns and cities then, right? Yes, uh, yeah. So the only two towns of any great um, sightseeing worthiness from a guided walk point of view, south of Lisbon, are Evora and Lagos, I would think. Cristina? Yes, uh, pretty much that is Evora, Lagos, and probably also Silves. Silves is a very interesting small town. It was the headquarter of the Moorish culture in the Algarve, the headquarter of the Caliphate of uh, the South ah, Portugal. So that's so, a, a whole different aspect ex- of Portuguese ex- exactly, history. Exactly, exactly. So if uh, Lagos was like uh, the major harbor and you have uh, all this, uh, the way out from the Algarve to the, with, with the navigations, Silvers, we are talking about from the 18th to the 12th century. The Muslim society Muslim coming society. in. So Silvers for the Muslims coming don't, in yes, don't and Lagos for... Vasco da Gama and Magellan yes. going out. Don't forget that uh, the river that passes in uh, Silves, it was the Guadiana, and it was navigable. So they pretty much from there, they could get into the interior of the countryside, of the interior land. And okay. they are pretty cities that nowadays are far away from everything, but they have their great uh, and richness period exactly on, from the 8th until the 12th century. Brent, if I could advise, uh, you know, I find that one of the charming things about Portugal is to hire a local guide. Uh, they're reasonably priced, very charming, and they make a subtle history very interesting and understandable. You can do that in Evora. You can do that in Lagos. Of course, you can do that in Lisbon. Uh, Roberto? Uh, Brent, I would also recommend you could just walk into the Tourist Information Center, especially in Evora, because they have a, uh, a policy of if anyone wants a guided tour, you walk in and you can ask for that, and you can hire a guide for a couple of hours, and they'll show you the highlights, uh, and then you'll know how to get around town, and you can explore more on your own. Great tip. Brent, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Yeah. We'll continue in just a minute with Cristina Duarte, a tour guide from Lisbon, and Roberto Wright, a guide who's getting ready to move to Lisbon from Buenos Aires. They're both experts on taking Americans around Portugal. And we have more to explore coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Email is radio at ricksteves.com. And post your comments and travel reports about Portugal to our online message board in the radio section at ricksteves.com. We're talking with guides to Portugal, Cristina Duarte and Roberto Wright, and with our listeners at 877-333-RIC. 
You may notice coming up that one of our callers, Clifford in California, was invited back to be a guest on Travel with Rick Steves after we had recorded this interview. You may have heard him a few weeks ago on the show as he discussed what he learned about Portugal's revamped policy toward drugs. If you missed hearing it, it's in the radio archives at ricksteves.com. So keep in mind that we might even invite you to be a guest on a future edition of Travel with Rick Steves. So write us a short note about what you're learning from your travels around the world. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Now, when I think of Portugal and I think of Portugal food, I think of cod. And the cod comes from Norway. Robert, what's the deal with that? Well, when you overfish and everything is fished out, you have to go somewhere else to get your cod. And because it was such a staple of the Portuguese diet for a long time, you uh, you end up getting whatever you can and using it. Because the, the old myth is that there's 365 cod dishes, one for every day of the year. And wow. it's still true. I mean, people do eat a lot of salted cod. So historically, uh, Portuguese, the, the source of protein was cod, which they caught right off the shore, and they outfished it, and now they still have that inertia, and they get it from Norway. And they get it from Norway. And it's salted. Yes. And one's from Canada. Really? Exactly. Oh, Newfoundland. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And do, you like, yeah. do you like cod? Uh, I like cod. What's I the word for be, cod uh, in Portuguese? Bacalhau. I suppose most Portuguese people like their bacalhau. We like bacalhau, but as we have 365 ways of cooking it, as Robert just said, it ends up that you don't eat all kind of uh, recipes. There are some recipes that you like more than the others. For me, (laughs) I just go into one of these little tiny bars and you you have a, a, a small drink and you have a little... Fried cod yeah. treat. Mm-hmm. Like a beignet? Yes. I love those things. Yeah. It's a little Wonderful. fritter. Yeah. A, fritter. Yeah. <laughs> a cod fritter. A fritter. I can't get enough of those cod fritters. It's like you a, you it's have like to a, taste it with a white wine or a beer. It's, it's like just a fantastic. $2 little meal. Yeah. You know, yes, you got a cod yes, fritter yes, and a glass yeah. of white wine. <laughs> now, you've got something famous called the green wine, Vino Verde. Vino Verde is produced mainly in the northern part of Portugal. So, in that region that we call Minho. The Minho region is the one that comes from the, the name of the river that divides North Portugal to Galicia. Now, this it's, is kind of a sprightly young it's wine. It's a sparkling wine, and it's called Verde, not really because of the color, because it can be white or red, but because the grapes, they get matured, hidden by the leaves. The vines are very high, so when they grow the, the grapes, they are actually completely hide by the leaves, so they, they don't get the sugar from the direct contact from the sun. So it's always sparkling and a little bit uh, dry. It's dry and uh, yeah, very crisp, dry. very yes. crisp. And the interesting thing is the, the Minho region, uh, like Christina said, it's, it's actually a cloudy, rainy region. Mm-hmm. It's not ideal for growing grapes or making wine, huh. but they make the best of what they can, and it's, a, it's a spectacular wine. It goes excellent with seafood because of the crispness and the tartness that it has. Uh, it's, a lot of it is drunk in the South, actually, yes. yeah. because with all the seafood that's there. I just love it. And, when I, and it the, does fit the, the seafood the very seafood nicely. And again, the seafood and the weather, because it's one of the, it's one of the wines that go like so good in with this you imagine like a wonderful, well, you on the beach with a beautiful <laughs> landscape around you. On and a warm day. day. And a warm day. And this is so cool because it must be cool. It must it's be a refreshing, refreshing. It's a refreshing wine. Yes, it's a yes, fresco. Yes, you know, it's just fresco. looking at the joy in your face yeah. when you talk about Vino Verde. <laughs> Do makes, you have a bottle here? It makes me thirsty. <laughs> now, there's a different uh, famous liquid in Portugal, and it's uh, port. Port. Uh, liquor or uh, enriched wine. Now, this is a, a, a very a fortified wine, or how would yes. you describe fortified? Port? Definitely. Fortified. What does that mean? Right? Uh, it means that you add a, uh, a stronger percentage of alcohol to the wine as it's being made, and that cuts off the fermentation, and it leaves a lot of natural sugar. So it, it increases the alcohol content, but the sweetness remains. Do they add a, a liqueur to that afterwards? Uh, they do not. Actually, that's the difference between sherry and port. Oh, that's what I'm confused. Because okay. sherry is where they add the sweetened liqueur to it, uh, and that's where the sweetness comes from. But in port, it's the natural sweetness of the wine that remains. Ah, so sherry is made in Jerez, over the border in southern Very Spain. nearby, Very actually. nearby. And yeah. port comes it's from a, the town of Porto, or the Douro no, River, right? the Douro River. And that goes and down to down Porto. down to Porto, and because the wine cellars, I mean, were in Porto, and from Porto City, there was a major harbor, commercial harbor, special to our major commercial partners, which were the English. So, because ah. of that, they took the name of that marvelous wine called Port Wine, because it was... From Porto. From Porto. So the river, the Douro River, which is the Rhine yes. River of Portugal as far as grapes goes, comes down and 
where it hits the Atlantic is the town of Porto. Yes. Which is one of my favorite cities in, in all of Iberia. It's a very rough and honest city. Beautiful. It's like Lisbon without all the government and museums, you know. <laughs> and it's just unpretentious. And they've got this passion for that port wine. Yes. So the, the name comes from the English who took that wine from the town of Porto. Porto. Yes. And the English like the port. Yeah. They love it. They it's, love it. Yeah. They Roberto, love it. if you're taking a group to uh, Porto, uh, how do you enjoy the port wine culture best? There's there's actually several ways you can do that. Probably the best way to do it would be visiting the port wine lodges, which are on the south bank of the river, uh, across from the city of Porto. The The town is called Vila Nova de Gaia, and you can visit a variety of port wine lodges. I would suggest really only three in a day because after three <laughs> tastings of port wine, which is 20% alcohol, you, you, can't re- you have to get back home. <laughs> <There's> really, <laughs> you have to cross the bridge and go back to Porto. Well, you can walk. well actually, they give you a map. <laughs> they give you a map. <laughs> but which way do you hold the map after yeah. all of the, the port wine tasting? So you guys sound like you've enjoyed a little port. You can literally walk there from the town of Port over the bridge yes, he's and over into the that bridge. wonderful it's rustic just... town. That is, You look across the river and you see all these names of famous port uh, yes. wines. Now those are historically came down the river in those traditional boats from the vineyards upstream. Right. They still have some of the boats there on display for you. These days, there's a lot of dams on the Douro River, and they can't actually bring most of the grapes by boat there, okay. but they're symbolic. And if you want to sightsee up the river, you can visit the, the vineyards and tour the vineyards, actually. You can, tu- you can tour them, yes. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Portugal with Cristina Duarte and Roberto Wright, two friends of mine who are tour guides uh, in Portugal. Clifford's on the line in Cayucos, California. Clifford, thanks for your call. Hello. Uh, yes, uh, we have a home in uh, north-central Portugal, actually, about 45 minutes northeast of Coimbra. And I was wondering, you know, that's kind of an undiscovered area. It's quite beautiful, and uh, I was wondering if you were ever going to come through that area. And uh, uh, it's, it's unique in many ways compared to the other areas of Portugal, and so that's really what my... Well, this is, if I can uh, try to put it in perspective, this would be like a three-hour drive northeast from Lisbon. Is that what yeah, it is? Yeah, just, uh, just about that. Now, when I think we of that, I just draw a complete blank, but I see yeah. both Roberto and Christina <laughs> nodding. So Clifford, you're where, the what is the, name of a, is the name of the town? The name of the village that we have our home in is Alcave. It's in the Camara of Arganil. Arganil, all right. So, Beira Alta. Uh, it's not really on the the most touristic areas of Portugal. We can say that it's pretty much unknown, that area, because it's just the beginning of the slopes of the mountain range that make the border between Portugal and Spain. So we pretty much normally, as you already have the the opportunity to see, most of the circuits and the most interesting cities, they go towards the, well, the water and uh, the littoral. So this uh, aspect, the internal part of Portugal, is quite well known. It's sort of high and, and uh, undiscovered. Sort of. Yeah, it's very remote. undiscovered. Now, Clifford, are you the only like non-Portuguese person there? No, actually, there's an expatriate from Los Angeles who lives just below us on five acres, and then we've got several uh, British families that live near us. Our village only has 90 people in it. So. Now, how are you received as an American living in, in a place that's not accustomed to a lot of uh, tourism and so on? Oh, they, they love us. It's we believe we think Portugal's heaven, but I'm Portuguese, but I had never been back until, ironically enough, I heard what you were talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, we hadn't been back. We hadn't been to Portugal for the first time until about five years ago. I teach college, and I went to Portugal for six months to study drug and alcohol policy. Were you studied drug and alcohol policy in Portugal? Yes. This is very interesting to me because I understand that they are quite progressive in, in treating uh, drug abuse as a, as a health problem rather than a criminal problem. Yes, they are. As a matter of fact, they've actually decriminalized drugs in Portugal, and I was fortunate enough to uh, be able to meet with who was the drug czar of Portugal at that time, and uh, it was really quite interesting, but we just literally fell in love with the country, and we thought, well, how can we ever get back here? We had a little extra money, so it was like, well, why don't we buy a house? <laughs> huh. So when they decriminalized it, has has use gone up, and has this been a sort of a pragmatic way to uh, solve a problem they weren't solving with a sort of a heavy criminal approach to it? Use has actually gone down a little bit. For instance, their HIV and AIDS rates from injection drug use are quite low. Uh, They've remained low and stable. Uh, Portugal's real drug and alcohol problem is is actually alcohol. Within the European Union, uh, Portugal actually has the highest consumption rate of alcohol any of the 28 countries in the European Union. But with regards to illegal drugs, it's worked quite well. Hmm. 
That's fascinating. Hey, when you live in Portugal, do you find it a, a, a inexpensive place to have a house and, and just hang out and enjoy life? To be quite honest with you, Rick, we find that other than the costs incurred to get over there, it's actually cheaper living there than it is here. I've I've known some people who have retired in Portugal and on a on a relatively humble retirement they're living quite well. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, um we usually go over for uh, about 2 months and um to be quite honest with you, we actually save money while we're there. <laughs> and we and we travel while we're there too. We'd love to go to Spain and uh, you know, into France and what have you. So, Clifford, I think the the big difference there is the fact that you live in a rural area, uh, yeah. as opposed to an urban area, because the urban areas in Portugal are not the bargain basement that they used to be. They're actually yeah. quite expensive, but definitely in the rural areas. That's a good point. I, I've recently read, I guess, that Lisbon's become quite costly. Yes, it has. Yeah. All right, hey, Clifford, good luck with your studies and your work and your enjoyment of Portuguese culture. Yes. Happy Thank travels. You. Nice talking to you. You too. Thanks for your Bye. call. Mitchell's on the line in Happy Valley, Oregon. Mitchell. Hi, how you doing? You know, when you talk about Portugal, all travel brings about emotion. And uh, I always remember what uh, you said, Rick, in your book about this one area. Is it uh, Salima Beach or Salama Beach? How do you pronounce it? Salema. 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 Okay, thank you. I was wrong on both counts. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, let's, let's let our listeners know what we're talking about. The Algarve is the south coast of Portugal, and it's got those uh, picture postcard-perfect kind of beaches that, uh, and a lot of resorts and a lot of timeshare condos and so on. And over the years, as uh, guidebook researchers and tour guides, we've scoured that south coast and found a few little enclaves that are to our uh, liking, that are less developed and really magical, and right close to the very southwest tip of Portugal, Cape Sagres, where they figured in the old days was the end of the world. Uh, there's a little town, a fishing village called Salema, S-A-L-E-M-A, and we just love Salema. Have you been there? When I uh, went, Rick, I, uh, I know why you call it paradise. And it, well, why do you like it so much? Because probably the same reason. It was simple pleasures. You know, that to me, that is always will bring about paradise. You know, we it was a simple little place. Uh, I hope it's still that simple. And we got this room from this private little lady and her husband. Mitchell, what year uh, did you go in? That was about five years ago. Uh, five years ago. Salema's yeah. changed a bit since then. Yeah, the buildings people. are a little bit taller than they used to be, but it's still relatively undiscovered. And can you still get stay in quartos? You can stay in quartos, yes. Tell us what quartos are. Uh, quartos are, is the Portuguese word for rooms, and it's basically families who rent out rooms in their own homes, and, and it's like a homestay, uh, but you usually have a separate entrance and a separate key, and so you don't necessarily mingle with the family, but you live in their home. And it's a beautiful, it's, it's not only half the price of a hotel, but it's usually more spacious. and, and it's more and spacious and more local feeling. Yeah. You, you get more of an so experience. So that's a key word, quartos. And all over Portugal, you've got women sitting on the curb waiting for a tourist car to drive into town, and she hops up with a sign that says in five languages, room to rent. And uh, do you know what is that? You don't risk like going to a, a kind of nasty place that uh, you don't know what you are ending up to, because all this running of quartos, they are uh, legalized. I mean, they have to go through the town hall. So they're regulated. Yeah, exactly. And safe. This particular lady, she shook the bed, and she used you as a marketing theme. She shook the bed and said, "Rick, Steve, sleep here." <laughs> <laughs> and it was $20 a night we took it for three nights and our door opened up on that little prom on the beach and when I speak when I think of Portugal that's what I think about oh thank man you very much. thank you Salema you've got your $20 bed Rick Steve sleeps here you got your little little balcony you got the ocean wide open you see the, the tractor pulling in the boats and they pull out all yes. those those pots, those pots that just like Phoenician times. I mean, set octopus catching. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much, Mitchell, for getting us into this Salema mood. Thank you for that paradise. Bye-bye. Bye now. So you got this octopus jars, and I understand each family has a little territory that, that they get to they know, they know exactly where they need to be and where they can place their pots because each family thinks they've, they've scouted out the best position to get the most octopi. So, uh, and every day they go out and they, and they get those pots in, and, and you can just buy it right there on the beach if you want to. So, if you have somewhere to cook, you can buy it and cook it up yourself. So they drop those pots down, tied to a long rope, spread about a meter apart or a couple meters apart, and then they come back later, pull up their rope, 
And these octopus thought, hey, that pot looks like a nice place to get a little <laughs> yes. shelter. I'll go in there and take a little <laughs> siesta. And it's the last mistake they make. That's it. Yeah. They pull them into the boat, and yeah. uh, it ends up. And then on they're on the your plate. plate. It ends up on Clifford's. Yeah, we know wonderful plate rice. There. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wonderful rice stew. <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful thing having some uh, octopus on the south coast of Portugal. I've been talking with Cristina Duarte and Roberto Wright about Portugal. Robert, if you were to write uh, your favorite collection of uh, images and experiences in Portugal and put one photograph on the cover of that collection, what would it be? Definitely a woman singing fado, dressed in black, with her head held back and her shawl wrapped around her shoulders. That would definitely be the image of Portugal for me. So fado is sort of the fisherwoman, widow blues? What the, is, the, what yeah, that? the Portuguese blues, basically, because it's a very simple kind of music with usually a regular guitar and a Portuguese 12-string guitar and uh, one singer. It can be male or female, but the majority are females. And a reminder of the rich culture of Portugal and its ties to the sea. Exactly. Christina, if you were to collect all of your favorite images of Portugal into a little book, what would the photograph on the cover be? <laughs> a blue sky, definitely. I think that we have this beautiful blue sky. And when you are at uh, Cabo da Roca, that is the most western point of continental Europe, and you have the fulfillment of that uh, the Atlantic horizon, you know that that is it, all about life. Portugal. Portugal. Cristina and Roberto? Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Rick. Obrigado. Obrigado. De nada. places or experiences that you recall most fondly from your travels. Tell us about the essence of your travels in a haiku poem. We have a link for sending them in to us in the radio tab at ricksteves.com. Here are some recent submissions we wanted to share with you. Aaron Cole of Sioux Falls, South Dakota gets to hear Travel with Rick Steves on South Dakota Public Radio. She wrote this haiku about her visit to San Diego. The beach at sunset, wading in the cool water... So worth the car trip. Kelly Westhoff from Minneapolis keeps a haiku blog online at haikuby2.com. She shares this one about Maui. Vacation dreaming. Did you know there's a place called Haiku Hawaii? And she adds this one she wrote in Rome. Sticky tabletop. Hot waiter winks. And I will forgive anything. And KUOW listener Clay Schwen of Muckleteo, Washington, sends us this one he calls Visiting the In-Laws. 1,600 miles. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. Where's the liquor store? Up next, we open the phones to hear your stories of getting the most from your travels to other countries by finding ways to make friends with the locals. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Let's open the phones at 877-333-RICK and hear from some of our listeners about getting the most out of our foreign travels. And Julie's on the line in Sacramento, California. Julie, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. I love your backdoor travel philosophy. Travel is so much richer when you get to experience the local culture. And what better way to experience the culture than through the people? But how do you connect with the locals when you're really shy? Well, one thing I always remind myself is that we're shy because we're kind of worried about what people will think of us because you have to deal with those people if they think poorly of you or something. But when I'm traveling, nobody knows who I am, and uh, I'm not going to see these people tomorrow because I'm just always on the move, and I can be a little bit of a crazy nut. And the people who are comfortable being crazy nuts are the ones who make all the friends over there and have all the good, spontaneous, unpredictable memories. And a lot of us who are shy have to work on that. It's a skill to be a, just a little bit extroverted, and uh, that's the challenge. When I'm in Europe, if I see three guys sitting on a bench, I'll join them, and I'll talk to them. And I kind of remind myself that they're probably bored with their little station. They're probably bored with their conversation. They're probably friendly characters. They're probably just as curious about me as I am curious about them. In fact, that's a very important assumption to make, is that we may find these people fascinating, 
and sometimes even kind of bizarre, and they find us fascinating and sometimes even kind of bizarre. So when you see those three people on the bench and you approach them, what do you say? Buongiorno. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I just clown around with their language. I might say, Uh mamma mia, and they might say, you know, Obama, and pretty soon we've got a conversation going. You have to be willing to toss out the first volley in a conversation like that. Uh Um, It is a trick, and I've got an advantage because I'm over there working, and I have friends that I work with and see year after year. But when I'm on my own, I know that if my day is, is less interesting and there's just no dazzle to it, it's because I was not doing a very good job of meeting people. We do need to know that... There are certain avenues that you take when you want to meet people. If you go into a pub in Ireland or Scotland or England, and if you sit at a table, you're doing yourself a disservice if you want to meet people because the table is where people sit not to be social. If you want to be social, you sit at the bar. When somebody sits at the bar, they know people are sitting there because they're open to talking. They want to talk. Uh, and, And there's lots of examples like that. In Turkey, I don't let a day go by without going into a coffee shop or a tea house and challenging a local person to a game of backgammon. These old boys are hanging out, you know, they may they may be retired or they may just be unemployed, and they hang out at the tea house all day long. And if an American, especially American woman, steps in and challenges them to a game of backgammon, all of a sudden everybody's going to gather around and it's going to be a fiesta. So you need to be a little bit adventurous and uh, remember they're just as interested in you as you are in them. And one thing Americans are good at is being able to take that first step. We are less formal. We're more casual and friendly and easygoing, and and that can be a real advantage in your travels. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Julie, good luck on meeting the people, because you and I know that's what carbonates your travel experience. All right, thanks. All right. Rob's on the line in North Andover, Massachusetts. Rob, thanks for your call. My pleasure, Rick. Now, you heard Julie just now? I did. I heard Julie's uh, conversation with you. Very interesting. Now, you had a chance to actually um, prove out my point, I think, here. How did you meet some people, and what happened? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little background. My wife and I were traveling uh, at the time. It was our first trip to Europe, and uh, one of the stops was in London. So needless to say, like anybody else, we wanted to see some of the major sites, and uh, not the least of which was to take a walk down, I think it's uh, Whitehall Avenue, and uh, stop off at 10 Downing Street, at least to try to see where the prime minister lived. And um, we approached the gate. And there were throngs of people. There probably were three or four deep. And it was clear to us immediately that there was no way we were were really going to get close. And we decided to have some fun with the bobbies that were behind the gate. I took out the video camera, which for me, anytime you put somebody on camera, it's always a a big laugh. I started bantering with them. And I said to one of them in particular, I said, I need to get a really good shot of two of the nicest bobbies in all of London, the hell with 10 Downing Street. And they started to laugh. And we started joking back and forth. And before I knew it, I was asked to approach the gate. And he asked me, uh, hey, mate, how'd you like to go to the front door? And I said, I'd love to do it. So before we knew it, he opened the gate. And we were standing in front of the prime minister's door. It was surreal. Wait a minute, Rob. You're on Whitehall there in London, and they got the big black iron gate that all the tourists just press up against and can't even get near. You've got it. And you just joked around with the bobbies, disarmed them. They invited you in and took you down that special street to the prime minister's front door. I have the photos and the videotape to prove it, Rick. You wouldn't believe it. I didn't dream that's possible, but that is giving us all hope that we can make the impossible happen when we make friends with the guys who man the gate. It was amazing. And, you know, for, for whatever it's worth, we did have a little bit more of an extended conversation. I mentioned to him that I had a dad that was a police officer and, um, and a nephew that was a police officer, and I could certainly relate to what it was that they were doing. And we became instant friends in, in a relatively short period of time, and we had a lot of fun. I couldn't believe it. To this day, it, it still amazes me that we, we got that close. And it was a travel memory that I'll never forget. And the lesson is, you made it happen. It didn't come to you. You made it happen. You've got your shtick with your video camera. You're not very proud about just counting around with these guys. You're just there having a good time, and it worked for you. That's exactly right. Look, I, I didn't realize that, that 10 Downing Street was so far removed from, from Whitehall. Uh, I thought it would be a little bit closer. Right. But, no, uh, you don't see anything. You just stand there seeing these annoyed bobbies and a bunch of annoying tourists, and you got the frustration of if somebody famous is coming in, 
Everybody has to get out of the way. They open the gates, and a black limo with tinted windows drives by, and then they close the gates, and all the tourists push up against the gates again. Exactly right. (laughs) So we bailed on the idea of 10 Downing Street and decided just to have some fun with the, the bodies that were there. And it worked out very well for us, an experience I'll never forget. You never know. I was, I was a couple hundred meters from there last, uh, about a year ago, at Westminster Abbey. And I met a guard there in his red outfit standing at the, the exit of Westminster Abbey. I got talking to this guy, and he actually said, come with me. And on his break, he took me to the room that nobody else gets to see where they actually translated the King James Bible. And there's these little you know, eurekas that that are there for those of us who will stop and talk to people. And you can just be a friendly, talkative, casual tourist with a video camera, and you'd be surprised at some of the fun things you can stumble upon. Rick, I couldn't agree more. And I think really what helps is that if, especially when you're dealing with an individual who's encountering tourists day in and day out, there's kind of a, you know, an employee-tourist relationship. And yeah. I think if you can break that barrier and, you and did. have a personal relationship with them, it works out well. Well, that was the cool line that you had. You said, I don't care about the prime minister. I want to talk to some good-looking bobbies. Yeah, exactly right. Right away, you had a friend. And he started to laugh, and we had a good time. And, good uh, for you. And, and the rest is history, as they say. And, Rob, you're inspiring some other travelers to connect that way. Rob in Massachusetts, thanks for your call. My pleasure. Okay, happy Take travels. Take care. Yeah. Bye now. Our phone number, 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And we have an email from Mary in Newburgh, Oregon, and Mary writes, My husband and I traveled to Terschelling Island in the Netherlands in the off-season in March and found mostly locals and mainlander Dutch there who were more than happy to show us their beautiful island in the North Sea. No lines or crowds, but plenty of open hotels, restaurants, and shops. The weather was cold and wild, giving us a chance to retreat into the cafes and pubs to meet the locals. It's a beautiful place with lots of birds and hiking, biking, trails, and, of course, the dramatic North Sea. That's from Mary in Nurburg, Oregon, talking about Terschelling Island, T-E-R-S-C-H-E-L-L-I-N-G, Terschelling Island in the Netherlands. That's one of those places that is just about two steps beyond where all the American tourists go and anywhere in your travels. If you take that extra initiative to get away from the places that are highly promoted, you're more likely to find yourself in a, in a cozy little pub surrounded by new local friends. And I know in the Netherlands, they just love to take refuge in a pub. In fact, uh, in the wintertime, they've got the canals. And when it's a cold winter, uh, they've uh, been skating on the canals and they kick off their ice and they uh, step into the pub or the little uh, restaurant on the canal. And it's so convivial, your, your glasses just steam right up, and, and then in a moment you're sitting down, and it's sort of the great equalizer. In, in one of these uh, convivial eateries in the countryside of the Netherlands, there's no high class and low class. Everybody's out enjoying the countryside, and then stepping inside for a little bit of the local cuisine and a little bit of conversation with new friends. It's a great thing when you're traveling to remember that you can go beyond where the tourists go, meet more people, spend less money, and have a better time. Jeff's on the line in Brunswick, Georgia. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Uh, Rick, I want to see if you have any suggestions on the best way to document your trip once you get home. How would you document a trip once you get home? It seems to me you need to document it while you're doing it. How do you uh, put all your pictures together and, you know, get all your information? And you always have friends and oh yeah, uh, co-workers want to know about your trip. And how do you put something together for them? Well, for me, the critical element of that is how do you take notes while you're traveling and do you photograph it? Uh, one underrated way to do it is simply to buy postcards as you go and write in the back of the postcards what you did. I think that's a fun thing to do. Uh, A lot of people gather things in their travels that will end up in a scrapbook when they get home. A key would be to take a camera that you're comfortable with, and you've got to decide, do you want a big, heavy camera that does a lot of things or a simple point-and-shoot? There are very simple little video cameras now that are becoming the rage, and uh, then you have the challenge when you get home of editing that all together. For me to be taking notes as I travel and then go back to the hotel room and uh, distill those into an ongoing journal and post that on a blog is a beautiful souvenir. You can get a very easy blog software and uh, put a blog up in your travels with or without photographs, and that becomes not only a lifelong souvenir but a way to stay in touch with your friends and loved ones as you're traveling. When you get home, you know, you can put it in a PowerPoint presentation if you're into computers, or you can just paste it in a scrapbook. But to me, it's those impressions that you have that you have to write down, and I can never, when I get home, remember those impressions. But if I write them down as they're occurring to me in my travels, that becomes my favorite souvenir. Does that give you any ideas? Uh, yes. You know, any hints about, you know, you, you usually come home with hundreds and hundreds of pictures. Right. Is any 
suggestion you do during your trip to maybe help you when you get home to know what you took? Are you taking digital photographs? Yes, digital. My favorite thing about my digital camera is I can shoot shots all day long with no uh, trying to minimize the shots, and it's a wonderful little relaxing chore for me when I get into the hotel at night after a long day of sightseeing to go through and delete the shots as I review them, just looking at them on my computer or on my camera. And uh, I think it's fun to shoot like extravagantly and then distill it down uh, in the hotel room that night and uh, it gives you a nice review of the day and then you don't go home with thousands and thousands of shots you go home with a few hundred shots and uh, I think that's usually plenty that sounds great useful information there and then as a safety remember uh, you can drop by a department store anywhere in Europe and have them burn your photographs onto a disc so you have a good solid backup Uh, and uh, I find that's a a very practical thing to do and and not very expensive good luck on your travels Jeff thank you And Michael's on the line in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks for your call. You got an idea for us about travel? Uh, Going over to uh, Sweden and finding our uh, long-lost relatives. I really encourage this for for anyone that has lost contact with their family roots from the old country. My grandparents were uh, from Sweden, and uh, the family uh, lost contact with our uh, relatives over there. So my mother had done some uh, initial research by writing the uh, libraries over there and getting some information. We were very confused because the town that they were from, my mother's mother, was Omot. It's A with a little O over it, uh, M-O-T. But there were about five or six of these towns in Sweden. So we didn't know exactly where to go. Uh, so my wife and I went over with this basic information uh, we went to the uh, the genealogy library in uh, Karlstadt, which is over on the uh, on the western side of Sweden, and the people there were just very helpful, and they uh, pinned it down. It wasn't uh, Omats; it was Omats Fors, which hmm. was another little town. So we drove there, went to the church and the graveyard, and the people were very very helpful. We saw my great-grandmother's grave with uh, gravestones and some great-aunts and great-uncles. And, but we were looking for living relatives to try and make that connection again. Part of the family had moved to a nearby town called Alvika, so we had to go to that church. And they had the actual name of a person that uh, was maintaining the grave of some of our relatives in that town. And this person lived back at the original town. Okay. And so we had a little slip of paper with the name of our relative and the phone number, and we went back to the original church and asked the lady there if they would make a phone call and try and reach that uh, that person and translate for us. And so I gave her the little slip of paper, and she said, Oh, my gosh, he's sitting in the outer lobby. And so we rushed out there, and they introduced us, and we met our relatives, long-lost relatives from Sweden. Uh, they uh, treated us royalty continued our trip through Norway, and actually came back to that town Ah. on a Sunday and went to the church that my great-grandmother attended with our new uh, newfound relatives. Just to kind of review, first of all, in Sweden, I think uh, by some measures the greatest percent of the population left the country during tough times in the 1800s and emigrated to the United States. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if you've seen the movie The New Land or The Immigrants, but those are two great movies telling the story of the Swedish immigration. Three of my grandparents came from Norway, and the whole story of Scandinavians in in poverty-stricken times coming to the New Land is quite exciting. And now they're ready for us to come back there and, and, and track our roots. Did you find that this service is just free? Are, are the Americans considered pests that are kind of tracking down their roots? It was wonderful. The library in Karlstad, since we didn't know exactly you know, which town it was or where to go, we had to do real detective work. And we had three or four people helping us at the same time doing different parts of this to try and figure out exactly which town it was. And that was just a service the library provided? We, we had to pay a small fee, but, uh-huh. but they were very, very helpful. That's great. And then when we get, got to the church... They had computerized all the graveyard records. We gave the person um, the basic information, and she would type it in the computer, and then she would look up at us and say, oh, do you want to see your great-grandmother's grave? And we said, yes, of course. Whoa. <laughs> and she just takes us out to the, uh, to the graveyard, very well-maintained, beautiful graveyards with fresh flowers oh. on the graves, just absolutely amazing. When we met our relatives, they were uh, elderly in early 70s, and we didn't speak Swedish, and they didn't speak very much English. But when they were kids in school, they didn't teach English. They taught German. Right. 
And so I spoke a little bit of German. So we were you know, amazingly, you know, in Sweden talking to our relatives in German. <laughs> Did they know who you were? Since we met at the church, the people introduced us and had to explain in Swedish who we were. But did they know of you beforehand? No, no, no. Before we got there? So you could have been anybody. I could have gone there and faked it. Yeah. See, now that's an interesting travel tip. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, Michael, you looked up relatives who didn't even know you existed, and they didn't even speak English, and it was still a good experience. Absolutely. A lot of people could take that as a a little nudge and not only find the tombstone with their family name on it, but find some of the long-lost relatives. Yeah, it was one of the most uh, amazing things uh, that has happened to me and and well worth it. What was the name of the town again? It's uh, Omots Fort, A with a little O over it. Omots Fort, yep. F O R S, and it's in Varmland. And Varmland is the area where the most immigrants left from. And uh, what is your family name? It's uh, Schoenberg. Schoenberg. Yeah. Okay, Schoenberg. so I'm going to go to Omots Fort, and I'm going to tell them I'm a Schoenberg, and I'm going to meet the same people, okay? <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, Michael, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye bye. We have an email from Louise in Northampton, Massachusetts. She shares a, a fascinating connections she had with Italy by visiting a relative. Louise writes, My traveling companion's aunt in San Ambrosio, Italy, opened my eyes to the history of the area. Hearing her talk about sharing her childhood home with occupying German forces during World War II, having her explain how the townspeople had to sleep in the hills at night because the homes might have been bombing targets, hearing her talk about her father's work as a stonemason and sculptor working in the beautiful pink marble of the region, I could have listened to her all night. Wow, Louise really struck on something there. And it wasn't even her relative. It was her traveling companion's aunt. You don't need next of kin over there. With any creativity, you can find locals to connect with. You are a blessing to them, and they'll be a blessing to your trip. They will make everything much more vivid because you can't understand the history of a region without talking to the people who lived that history. And there's lots of people with vivid memories who are eager to share the stories that happened right there. Oh, I want to be a friend of yours. I want to be a pal of yours and a little bit more. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with help from Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Gretchen Strauch for reading today's haiku. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including archives and a link for sending us your travel haiku. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next European experience, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.